Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name is Brent. And this episode, we're discussing SST 170, the Paper Bag album, A Land Without Fences. We haven't had the band Paper Bag on the show for a while. And if A Land Without Fences is a metaphor for no limits or boundaries, that is exactly what you get with this record uh, for sure. And we've got a special guest, Brent. Yeah, Greg Siegel's on the show. Yeah, very cool to have Greg on the show. It might be, when I listen to the interview, the interview where you say, wow, the most of all time. (laughs) I think you say, because it is just a mind blower. I mean, the concept of this band, but you just, it's hilarious. I was laughing. You could almost do like a Brandt saying, wow, drinking game for this interview. So hang in there, folks. It's really cool. And uh, we're so glad to have him on the show. Before we get into it, Brant, why don't you hit the people with some spiels? Uh, why don't you go, Ryan? I'm just sitting here squeezing my stress ball and drinking my coffee. So, <laughs> Am I stressing you out already? <laughs> We're usually good until you get to history lesson part one, mm-hmm. but okay. Here we go. My first spiel is an SS Tree spiel, Record Store Day combo, but... One release that is not coming out on Record Store Day, but was released or is about to be released, is a new solo album by Lou Barlow, Reason to Live, out on Joyful Noise Records. I always welcome a new Lou Barlow record. We've got a Lou Barlow and a Dinosaur Jr. record in quick succession here, which is fantastic. This is an album, though, that was largely spurred on by his artist's enabler program and joyful noise which i subscribe to so every quarter i would get just tons of lou barlow music and also some physical copies cassettes lathe cut there was a 12 inch and as part of that we also the subscribers received this album and then it's now out there for the rest of the world to get, which is really cool. It's a good Lou Barlow record. It's not like a full band Lou Barlow record, but it's not a lo-fi one. It's just the right Lou Barlow for me. Okay. But there are some SST-related releases coming up in these upcoming Record Store Day drop days that they've announced. They're in June and July. And here, here are the ones that I caught. You may have caught some other ones, Brent. I don't know. The Dose album, Justamente Trays, on Kill Rockstars is being re-released on Teal Vinyl. That's cool. That's Mike and Kira, of course. Also being re-released is the Mark Lanigan album, Here Comes the Weird Chill. That's on Beggar's Banquet. That one's from originally from 2003, I think. I, I checked real quick. Tav Falco has got a 12-inch coming out. Club Car Zodiac, and Mike Watt is on that one. Also, there is a Mud Honey Meat Puppets split single. Yowza. Yeah, that's a wild one. That's very cool. What a great combo. They were supposed to tour together. I don't think it happened because of COVID. Yeah, that's too bad. I, I sure hope everyone can stay healthy. And man, if we could catch that on tour, yeah, whoa. No kidding. Whoa. Uh, Mud Honey is doing the song Warning, which is an Ainsley Dunbar retaliation track. And then Meat Puppets are doing One of These Days, which is an Earl Montgomery track. Mm. Also being released is the American Laundromat Records Tribute to Repo Man compilation. First time on vinyl. 
There's a Mike Watt and the Second Man track on there doing Let's Have a War. Those are the SS Tree releases for Record Store Day. I'll mention two that I'm pumped to get. And one of them is actually due to you. You mentioned a few weeks back uh, when you were doing a Comzone edition, you mentioned the band Engine Kid. Right, yep. They are releasing a six LP box set mm. called Everything Left, which is uh, something that will be on my radar for sure. Also, another Wipers release, the Youth of America 40th Anniversary Edition, a double LP with bonus a bonus LP of rare mixes, apparently. Mm. That looks cool. And Brant might be the biggest surprise of all, because I never, ever thought this would happen, is they are re-releasing the Tales of Terror album. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Isn't that cool? Wow. Is that not cool for you? <laughs> had to get a few had to get a few wows in there. Yeah. Yeah, it is cool. It That's... is cool. I gotta get my hands on that. Yeah. Finally, man. Like hopefully it won't just be limited to record store day, you know? Yeah. I and again, like I just took a skim. I haven't done a deep dive into the track lists or anything, but you know, the cassette version of that record had two bonus tracks that was on a Boner Records compilation. I sure hope they sneak those two tracks on this re-release as well. Yeah, yeah, I'll be looking for that one. Did you notice anything else on the Record Store Day release list that looked interesting to you? Uh, there was one thing on there I saw that I really wanted, and I can't remember what it is now. You must really want it. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you tell me what's on there that I want? Uh, well, I just told you the ones that were of interest to me, but I'll, I'll point out the other, maybe other, there's a couple other ones too, that kind of sort of caught my eye. I was underwhelmed, I would say, when I read the list. Yeah, well, I mean, more than half of the ones I mentioned are re-releases, you know, which is, is has kind of pros and cons. The only other ones that caught my attention is there's a, a live Devo record. I'm not going to work real hard for that one there's a joe strummer 12 inch which is like a song or songs that are just off of that latest assembly comp i think so i don't think i need that i remember which one i i spotted ryan it's tad inhaler oh. i don't have that on vinyl oh yeah that's a great one jay mascus yeah. produced that's one of his better ones for sure yeah i only have it on cd so i'd i'd pick that up if i saw it yeah originally released on giant i believe i have i've got that one on vinyl tucked away somewhere well uh that's the record store day roundup then i guess keep your eyes out for that um don't spend too much money on the re-releases, that's for darn sure. I have a couple of Rock Doc shout-outs, though, before I pass it over to you. I saw a couple of trailers for some documentaries that I want to check out. One is not released yet, as far as I can tell, on Polystyrene, called I Am A Cliché. Polystyrene, of course, the lead singer of the UK punk band The X-Ray Specs. That one looks really cool. It seems like it's only going to be released in North America here once it's at the South by Southwest Film Festival, whenever that is going to be held safely, I guess. But obviously, like, Polly has some serious pipes. Great singer, great band. Looking forward to checking that one out. And then another one that is now finally out, and I don't think we've mentioned it, but I'm surprised if we haven't. Maybe we have. Called Underground Inc., it's a look at the alternative music scene in the 1990s. It's got, you know, people on the show like members of Helmet, Cop Shoe Cop, Steve Albini, of course, is going to make his appearance. It's all about the post-Nirvana explosion and subsequent, like, labels of, you know, dropping bands and all, you know, that whole story about they gave tons of bands that were 
loud and obnoxious money and then right. lots of bands got screwed and there's all these unreleased albums that's kind of what it's about that you can actually rent now or or purchase um, and that one looks cool. It, I looked at the people who are appearing in it, though. It's like doesn't seem like that big of a list of people from back then. Like it has Sean, the bass player from White Zombie and a couple others, like I mentioned. Not a huge amount, but I'm still going to check it out. I think it'll be good. Right on, man. That's all I got. Over to you. I'm time for me to start squeezing my stress ball. <laughs> all right. Ryan, new segment. It's called the Comp Zone Continuum. 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 Oh my God! What does that mean? These are bands that I dug in previous Comp Zone episodes that I explored further. Okay. Okay. I talked about the Comp Another Shot for Bracken, the Positive Force compilation compiled by Kevin Seconds. Yeah, man. And there was a San Francisco band on there called Short Dogs Grow. Yep. They have two full lengths on Rough Trade, self-titled one in 87, and one the one I checked out, 1988's Matt Dillon. Oh. Very cool, early kind of soul asylum replacements, Stones-influenced rock. Tom Pitts on vocals has a bit of a Gary Floyd thing going. Not as strong of a vocalist as Gary, but he definitely has the range. You'd like Short Dogs Grow if you've never heard him like yeah. that, Ryan. Well, I've only heard them on the comp. I haven't checked them out. Weren't they also identified as a band that was playing with one of the bands we had on the show recently too? Like on flyers and stuff? Am I remembering uh, that right? Uh, yeah, I've seen them on tons of flyers, but I think Descendants. Is that what it was? Maybe. Maybe yeah, when we had Stefan so. Edgerton on. Yeah. Maybe that was the one. Uh, Red Snurts, Ryan. The... Gulcher Records comp yeah, man. from 1981 of all Indiana bands, Dow Jones and the Industrials. They have a compilation called Can't Stand the Midwest, 79 to 81. It has their 1980 split LP with the gizmos on it and their one and only single, a ton of unreleased studio tracks, demos, a live set, a DVD, uh, live at third base, shot in 1980. Definite Devo influence, but really great early punk rock really heavy on the guitars lots of bleeps and bloops oh yeah <laughs> yeah it's amazing to be influenced by devo in 1980 right like yeah. that's you're you're an early uptaker for sure do you know that band dow jones and the industrial just from that comp just from red yeah. snurts comp i mean like you know how many comps i have i haven't explored every band this is this is gonna make me focus though i love it you should dig into that band dow jones and the industrials i think you'd like them yeah i'm sure i would okay 1990s tantrum compilation right a bunch a bunch of great bands and a band that grabbed me on there is called wreckage so they formed in la in 1989 uh, so they were pretty new when this track came out. It might have been like the first thing they did. They had a single in 89, uh, but then as far as I can tell, they broke up in 1990 with only that single in the comp track. And then they reunited in 1992 and did this album, which came out in 1994, called Crawling from the Wreckage. Self-released, really great gothy post-punk. Hmm. Like the guitars have that TSOL Beneath the Shadows sound. Oh, I wonder if they're in that uh, Phantoms book. Yep, they are. Uh, vocalist Tony Lestat was in a bunch of bands. He has that Dave Vanian thing down perfectly. Nice. They definitely looked the part too. They look like vampires. Looks like they split up again around 2000. There's a second album from 99 called Bad Vibes and a compilation that has the single on it. So I'm searching for that. 
Yeah, and you're referencing Mickey Bean's book, Phantoms, which you bought for me. I haven't read that book cover to cover, but it's every time I look at it sitting there on my bookshelf, I j- it's just so daunting. It's intimidating because it yeah. is, it's like, <laughs> how the hell is something as thick as a bloody encyclopedia volume, like, all about this, but it is. Yeah. So I definitely found them in there. There's no index in that book, and you could never have one in a in a book that size. It would just the the index would be would double the size of that book. But <laughs> yeah, so I need to dive in a bit more on Wreckage. This album's really good if you're into that kind of stuff. You like them, hey? Yeah, I really do. Yep. Oh, cool. Okay, Ryan. Three on the tree. Steve Fisk edition. Nice. Okay, so. Prior to 448 Deathless Days, Steve released two cassette-only albums, Kiss This Day Goodbye and Till the Night Closes In, and then following 448 Deathless Days in 1988 on K Records, one more called One More Valley that was cassette-only. Tracks off of all these, all three of these releases are collected on the excellent K comp Over and Through the Night from 1993. I'm probably never going to locate those first two cassettes, but I did track down One More Valley. It definitely picks up where 448 Deathless Days left off. It's got many of the same people, like all the pell-mell dudes, like Bob Bierman, Greg Freeman, Bill Owen, Gary Lee Connors on it, Lanigan, Sam Albright, Ben Fisk, P.S. O'Neill. Much of it was recorded, I believe, at the same time as 448. It's really cool. It's got a track called Go At Full Throttle, which is on Sub Pop 100. It has a cool song called Hello, which is just a dub of Johnny Rotten from in PL going, Hello, 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 hello. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then also, kind of related to Steve Fisk, Chains of Hell Orchestra. We talked about them a bit when we did the Steve Fisk episode. I tracked down a self-released cassette from 82 called Cairo's Ride. So Chains of Hell Orchestra is P.S. O'Neill, who has an album on Velvetone that was produced by Steve and has all these people playing on it. Uh, he wrote and directed Fertilichrome, that movie. Right. Yeah. And the label that this is on is called Dr. Stimson Records. Dr. Stimson was Steve Fisk's character, the, yeah. the villain in Fertilichrome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Peter Blecka played drums. He's now a writer and historian. He wrote a book called Sonic Boom, The History of Northwest Rock from Louie Louie to Smells Like Teen Spirit. He also has this amazing website called Northwest Music Archives where you can search bands and their discographies. And it's totally like... Exhaustive. It's, it's exhaustive. It's, yep. like, it's like the Phantoms book. This tape, by the way, so Steve plays synth on it uh, and he produced it. It's really awesome, 60s, kind of surfy at times, not unlike Pell-Mell. Steve plays killer Farfisa-style keys on it, but at the same time, it's also wonderfully weird, this Chains of Hell Orchestra. There's what sounds like movie clips throughout it with mentions of Dr. Stimson, but I don't think it's from Fertilichrome. (laughs) So, like, maybe an earlier P.S. O'Neill movie. There's a song on here called Generations Fast that's just so great. It sounds like something that could have been on a Nuggets comp. Oh, no way. Yeah. And then my favorite of the Steve Fisk Three on the Tree releases is the Halo Benders, God Don't Make No Junk. Oh, yeah. 1994 K Records, bit of a super group. It's Steve Fisk, Calvin Johnson of K Records, Beat Happening, Doug Marsh of Built to Spill, and the Tree People. Mm -hmm. Wayne Flowers plays bass and drums. 
on some of this, not only was Wayne in Tree People, but also in State of Confusion, that band that was associated with Carl Alvarez joining the Descendants. Ah. Remember? Yeah, remember the story? Yeah. Ralph Utes, also of Built to Spill, plays some guitar and drums. This is their debut. Totally love it. Calvin's baritone works great with Doug's kind of higher register. The songs are total earworms. I need to hear more of Halo Benders and Beat Happening too. Like, Beat Happening is one of those bands that I heard a long, long time ago and just did not like. But I, I think I would now. They need repeat <laughs> lessons. Unless they're instant, they need a repeat lesson. I'm not a huge fan, but uh, I definitely appreciate it. And honestly, it uh, it took me to see that documentary to to really appreciate Beat Happening. Yeah. I did watch half of that. I got to finish it, but the shield around the K. Yeah. But yeah, I think maybe I like beat happening now or my, I'm, I'm prepared for, to get into beat happening where I wasn't before. Yeah. Yeah. It's a different vibe, but it's good. Yeah. Those are my spiels, man. Should we get into a land without fences? Let's do it. History lesson part one. All right. Like I said, Brent, we have had paper bag on the show before it was SST 76, so it's almost been a hundred episodes since we had Paper Bag on. We actually were quite interested by them, and the Ticket to Trauma album back then, I mean, I think we really appreciated the creativity and the uniqueness of that record, but this record is on a whole other level. Like, it's the same idea, but it's way more out there, wouldn't you say? Oh yeah, it's way more avant-garde than yeah. than Ticket to Trauma. Yeah, I expected it to be kind of like a continuation, but it's it is almost I guess a hundred a hundred episodes later. It's only a few years later though, in terms of the band's progress. Not even a few years, I think, right? Yeah, about a year, I would say. About one, yeah. Okay. So yeah, quick recap, Ryan. Paper Bag was formed in nineteen eighty three by Greg Siegel on guitar. M. Siegel on drums and percussion, uh, with the idea of becoming a 100% improvisational band. And the name Paper Bag is usually followed by Improvisational Music Company. After some lineup changes, the group solidified around Greg and M. Siegel, along with Kenny Ryman, who joined in 1984 on keys, tape loops, vocals, percussion, and George Radai, 1985, bass and vocals. After self-releasing some cassettes, they released their vinyl debut in 1986 as SST 76, Ticket to Trauma. Before we get to the interview, Ryan, Greg sent in some articles that are, are really good from back in the day. Here's one from Michael Arkush from the LA Times. And the headline reads, Every song's a brand new bag in risk-taking musical democracy. Mm-hmm. Here's Greg from the article. It's our only chance to constantly and consistently say something new we're always forced to say something new on stage. And here's from the article. What members of Paper Bag seem most satisfied with is their diversity. They can do jazz, classical, rock. Mark Siegel sometimes uses hubcaps and toy guns to make certain sounds. Kenny Ryman often reads poetry and favors punk sounds. I like to bring a hard edge to our music, Ryman said. I like to create very grating sounds. The problem is many people aren't ready to accept it and to listen to it. The article also quotes their manager, Kevin Goodman, 
He says, I'm frustrated. I mean, what bill do you put paper bag on? Clubs have jazz nights or blues nights, but no night will make sense for paper bag. And then here's from uh, Bob Morris, who did the liner notes on the back of this record, which we'll be getting to in a bit here. He wrote a nice article on paper bag in Option Magazine. He says, when paper bag goes on stage or into the studio, they have no idea what's going to happen next. To the point of dogma, they play nothing but improvised music with no rehearsals, no compositions, no repetition, no second takes. In the words of drummer and band spokesman Mark Siegel, the music is created by spontaneous combustion and we just follow it. The LA poet and performance artist Deborah Exit, who has performed with the band on several occasions, remarks that their communication on stage is almost psychic. Eye contact and body gestures are how they decide what to do next. Given their capabilities, their methods, and their goals, very little about Paper Bag is predictable or easily described. Their music shifts rapidly from King Crimsonish passages to industrial blasts to tribal sections for space rock to fusion-styled attacks and beyond. Their website, Ryan, paperbagtheory.com, calls this their hardest, most abstract, and uncompromisingly assaultive album. Hmm. It says, many people close to the band have confided that this is their favorite release by the group. This one? Yeah. No way. Interesting. Yeah. It was recorded live to two-track, DAT, on July 23rd, 1987 at Spinhead Studios in North Hollywood, California, produced by Paper Bag, Phil Newman, and Todd Jacobs. Phil was, of course, the bassist, first in Sin 34 and then Painted Willie, and the owner and engineer at Spinhead. And the record was released in December of 87 on LP and cassette. So, yeah, Ryan, obviously a lot of the things you read about Paper Bag really focus on the improvisation, which, I mean, that's obviously what they do, which (laughs) you'll hear in the interview, I just have a really hard time wrapping my brain around the whole concept. Like, especially especially about releasing an album. Yeah, you know what I mean. How do you pick what the album is, right? Well, what if they did a better one a week later? (laughs) You know, like I, I feel like probably the four releases on SST are what most people are going to hear, unless you're a paper bag enthusiast or completist. Yep, that's probably true. So, so these are the ones that are representing the band to most people. Yep. Like, what if you're not happy with it? What if you do a better one? I, you know, I think that that exists for every album of recorded music. It's just that it's a more, maybe a higher risk or a more real consideration when it's fully improvised. When you play next week, you realize that last week, the thing that you turned into your album, that was the turkey. This was yeah. the good one. <laughs> well, I guess when you're improvising, you live or die by it. Exactly. By it. And that's part of the, the charm of this band and I'm sure you know what Greg what drew Greg to the band was this idea yeah you know he tried this himself with October Faction straight up improvising yeah I'm talking Greg Ginn obviously not Greg Siegel (laughs) (laughs) hit me with some Spaceman Ryan well I'll hit you with some Spaceman and then how about the uh, the big spiel on the back of the record and then over to the interview sure okay so here's what the Spaceman said about this record And of course, uh, there's a spiel 
about Paper Bag on the back of the No Age record as well. But I think we went through that. Maybe we didn't on the Ticket to Trauma album because No Age is 102. Better hit us with that one too. Oh my gosh. Okay, hang on here. I gotta. But uh, first I'll hit you with this one. Paper Bag, A Land Without Fences. Recorded direct to digital, all live, no overdubs. This record truly captures the essence of Paper Bag. Completely improvised, the music on this record shows a grasp of melody and intuitive playing never equaled. And then here's what it said about Paper Bag on the back of the No Age comp. Remember when you were a kid? Remember all the things that you could make out of a paper bag? This paper bag is the same thing, only instead of using paper, they use sound. Constructing full structures of sound, however, is only a small part of their virtuosity. The most amazing thing about them is that the music they play is completely improvisational. There are no set structures, no styles, and no overdubs. Their music is completely spontaneous and derives its inspiration as much from the environment as it does from the members' abilities. This is as free as music can get. The symbiotic interplay of all four members of Paper Bag makes for a sound that is remarkably coherent and always exciting. The song, Priests on Drugs, is from the album Ticket to Trauma, SST76, and the song Faith Opaque is from the album A Land Without Fences, this album, SST170. Mm-hmm. And here's what it says at the on the back of the jacket. Another, and, and you'll hear from Greg in the interview, the uh, author of this spiel, Bob Morris, he was, uh, I guess, a music critic who was a well, fan, right? Yeah, so here's what it says on their website. It says, Bob Morris first reviewed us for Option Magazine, which is the article I just quoted from, when we sent in 85.5, which is their self-released live cassette from 85. Uh, he then reviewed Ticket to Trauma for Option as well. Bob then did an article on us for Option Magazine, so we when we decided we wanted liner notes for the second LP, we decided he'd be a very logical choice. He was, he was surprised at first. Nobody was doing liner notes much in 87, but he quickly got over his disorientation and did a bang-up job. All right, well, here's what it says on the back of this record from Bob Morris. Paper Bag plays improvised music and nothing but improvised music, which is, indeed, something to ponder. For when they go on stage or into a studio or a rehearsal hall, they deliberately and intentionally have no idea at all what sort of music will emerge. All their music is completely spontaneous and improvised all of the time. This is an attitude that stops other musicians in their tracks, for after all, it's hard enough to get on stage and do a rehearsed set, but to get on stage and create your music as it happens, well, in less competent hands, this type of spontaneous music could degenerate into aimless noodling, but not here. By dint of their considerable musicianship, arsenals of equipment, and near-psychic communication, the music they produce has structure and direction, unlike some improv outfits who explore ideas in just a few genres. Paper bag draws ideals from all over. Progressive guitar meanderings, spoken word poetry rants with a minimalist backdrop, industrial noise blasts, good old rock and roll, experimental tape loops with walls of percussion, quiet jazz, get the idea? 
The members of this band are true believers in the importance of improvised music. The band was formed with that goal in mind and has deviated not one whit from it since. In an era of plastic bands with plastic principles, it's heartening to see a band that genuinely believes in what they do. And for those of you with suspicious minds, like I was at first, I've watched them rehearse, record albums, and play live. They genuinely play improvised music all of the time, period. Improvised music has a certain vitality and life that is absent on studio recordings with massive overdubs and dial twiddling. Don't be fooled by the so-called live albums either. Once the engineer gets done, it's anything but live. So if you want to hear some fine sounds direct from the musicians to you, give a listen to the music herein. Whoa. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's no surprise they wanted liner notes on the back of this to tell people what this was, you know? Yeah. If you were just buying this because it was on SST and you didn't know anything about Paper Bag, you'd probably wonder what the hell was going on when you listened to this record. <laughs> yeah, the context totally matters. Yeah. Let's kick it over to Greg. Yeah. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Greg Siegel. Greg, thanks for being on the show. Oh, my pleasure. All right, so we're on the A Land Without Fences record, but we've done Ticket to Trauma already, but I want to just do a little rewind and remind myself uh, how the band came together. Now, I know you had some players before, what kind of the SST lineup. Give me a brief rundown of what happened before Kenny and George joined the band. Well, um started off at one rehearsal as a four-piece. The keyboardist immediately left. Uh, next rehearsal and the next gigs were a three-piece, uh, me and uh, Mark and Richard Derrick on bass. Mm -hmm. uh, that went for a while. We got a sax player who also played uh, uh, bassoon, which was great. But he split shortly afterwards, too. We got Ken Rosser, guitarist, and uh, he was with us for about two years and right as he left, George came in. Kenny actually came in at around the same time as the sax player did. That's about that. And then things sort of gelled mm -hmm. with George and Kenny, and that was it. That was the main band. So it was you and your brother who started the band, though? Yeah. Okay. And were you playing together, like, in high school in bands? No. Uh, we're... We're eight years apart. He's he's the the elder of the two. This was the first time we'd worked together, but uh, it gelled. Of course, it was you know we knew where each other were coming from. So, mm -hmm. and when you formed the band, you knew it was going to be you knew the that it was going to focus on improvising. Yeah, we did because we were both kicking the idea around for a while. He was with a band that did an improvised piece per set. I thought my band had just broken up, and I thought, how about a band that just improvises, doesn't do anything else, and, you know, but maybe if a long piece sort of develops into something, uh, we can repeat that, and it'll become like a motif, like a jazz or something you could go off of. And then Mark expressed an interest in it and we sort of ironed out the details because he wasn't up for long long jams he thought that had been done way too much and he wanted to do shorter pieces 
mm-hmm. which was a new idea to me. I'd never thought of it. And uh, so that's that's kind of what we did. We just went from there, and that scared off uh, one person after another <laughs> until we ended up with our lineup. It's like, I can't do that. So when we hear something on something recorded on a paper bag album, those aren't edited down from longer jams. Like that's the correct. What you're hearing is the the piece that was performed. Yeah, that's what you would hear if you were in the room. You know, we start, we play through, we stop. Mm-hmm. Now, when you played live, did you perform songs off of the albums, or was it 100% new material every single time? 100% new material. Uh, that's why there's such a gigantic archive for us. Right. Nothing ever got played twice. So when you listen to Ticket to Trauma, for example, those songs never got played again. That's correct, yeah. Hmm. Did you ever get tired of improvising and wish you played in a band that wrote songs? Oh, yeah. I, I can't speak for anybody else, but about 88, because I'd always been writing material all alongside of it, so I had to start a side project to do some uh, you know, composed stuff and also, when you're improvising that much, I mean, we we were doing this every gig we could get for six years. Wow. So if you can imagine, the problem was coming up with stuff you hadn't already done. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, you start to feel like you're repeating yourself, and what used to be fun turns into a, a really not fun at all. Mm. And I, it started to become that way after a while just for yourself, say, as a guitarist, would you come with some riffs in mind? I wouldn't I wouldn't come to the gig usually or a rehearsal or whatever because they really weren't that different except for, a, you know, a time limit at a right. gig. I usually wouldn't, uh, and I don't think anybody else did too much, but again, it's, it's hard to speak for them. The poetry pieces were usually written ahead of time by George, or by actually Mark or Kenny, huh. but nobody else had seen them and they just give us an idea of a mood or something. But no, I rehearsals was where most people would bring something that would open up the territory for us. Like we haven't done something like this before. Let's explore new ideas. It's like a laboratory. And then when you get out live, you're not going to do that piece, but you're going to have the idea in mind of like, uh, you know, counting sequential time sequences in it uh, you know like this will be a bar of seven and that'll be a bar of nine and Mm -hmm. you know weird shit like that or you know you're going to play a reggae beat against uh you know a a seven or a blues or something so those kind of things got tested in rehearsal but live it was just you kind of just played it as the evening went now when you're playing live were there times when you tried something and it didn't work? Oh my God, every night. <laughs> every night. That's the nature of it. Right. You know, uh, some gigs were, you know, fair to middle, kind of medium. You know, some gigs were incredible, but those are on the rare side for anybody, I think, but certainly when you're improvising. And some gigs stunk outright. They were awful. Uh, and it just, it happens, you know, you're making stuff up on the spot. And if somebody's having a bad night, that might bring the whole thing down. And there's a, there were other nights where 
you think you've played a shit gig and you listen back to a tape or watch a video or something, and it's much better than you realize. Right. It's just everybody was in a bad headspace. Were there times, like for yourself personally, where you had, like, I'm just picturing myself up there, I play guitar. I'm not yeah. an improviser, though. Like, I feel like I would have a panic attack trying to think of something to play. <laughs> yeah. That's a common uh, a common reaction <laughs> to things. Yeah. The only person that ever sat in for me in the, the six years we were together was uh, Enoch Hain from the Dickies. Mm-hmm. We went back with him for, I mean, the real name's Bob Lansing, but, uh, you know, known him since I was five and my brother was, you know, what, 13, 14. Um, And he sat in with me and this guy could clean up the floor with me from a technique standpoint. So I was over at his place, you know, three or four in the morning, just he would call me and go by and we'd talk. And I said, he was practicing something and my jaw was on the floor. And I said, I got to take some lessons from you. And he said, (laughs) No, uh, I got to take lessons from you. That paper bag thing is the scariest thing I've ever done. <laughs> Are you kidding? He said, I don't know how you do that. It's it's not for everybody, that's for sure. It isn't. And the funny thing is, for me, it's totally the opposite. If I had to play and get every note right every night, not only would I get nervous, but I'd get bored. I'd yeah. get bored really fast. I guess that's a personality thing because every band I've ever played in, I always hated jamming in, in rehearsal. <laughs> I just wanted to, like, you know, work on the tune we were writing. You know, <laughs> sure, that's normal. That's that's the way most people are. That's just I'm totally the opposite. I don't know why, but uh, this is a good situation for that. So. Yeah. Well, I can definitely see how you would get off on it live. Yeah. You know, and I, you know, I do it. Actually, there were other bands after Paper Bag that were eighty to ninety percent improvised, but without Paper Bag's constrictions, because you wouldn't think a um, an improvised band would have those. But there was sort of a sort of a rule book for the way we did things. Paper Bag was almost a sport rather <laughs> than a band in a lot of ways because other bands would rehearse tunes and we would rehearse plays more or less. And there (laughs) were certain things you don't go over a certain time limit and you in a set, for example, if you play something really, really happy, really fast or rocking the next one, you take it down and you kind of either go lower and that would be called that the roller coaster Uh. effect. But I just kind of wanted to, you know, see what happened. So I did that with other bands, but Paper Bag always had an approach for that. Well, I mean, being a guitar player, you can jam in other bands. You can improvise like a guitar solo or whatever, or I mean, you know, the Grateful Dead or bands like that improvise. Sure. But that's not, (laughs) that's a far cry from Paper Bag style improvisation. Yeah. I, I know a lot of people are sort of like the, you know, the ending up, winding up at school naked, not remembering your uh, your combination, you know, the, the anxiety yeah. dreams, right? Yeah. I have a math test and I, I don't know where the classroom is. Right. A lot of people, if you said, go out there 45 minutes and play a set with nothing planned, that's their anxiety dream. But yeah. 
that's very very comfortable yeah to, and it, i think it was to everybody in the band which is finding people that comfortable with it is goes kind of a fluke but we got lucky mm-hmm. did you, you said you have like a wealth of material did you record yeah all your shows no unfortunately there were some really good ones we missed mm-hmm. and a lot of turkeys we did get but um there's there's roughly uh, about 400 hours worth of stuff. Wow. Uh, not all of it recorded well, and certainly not all of it worth releasing, but because, you know, you go back to that thing of not everything's going to be good. And uh, who was it? Erman Schmidt was saying that, I think, about Can, who also I think were completely improvised. You know... I was talking about his wife, I guess. If she was there, she can tell you not all of it was good. That's just, that's how it goes. But I'm thinking of, if time permits, I'm just going to put out as much of it as possible. And the stuff that isn't really good quality, like release quality, mm-hmm. I'll post it for free. Right. Just so people can check it out. Yeah, well, I mean, there's people out there that were at those shows and would probably love to hear oh, it. You bet, yeah. yeah. Where were you playing? Like, I know you played at Bebop Records quite a bit. Um, yeah. Who, what, what, are, what were the main venues you played? We weren't picky. We, uh, you know, we essentially took any gig we could get, and that resulted in some very weird shows, but we, we literally took everything. Uh, and after we got signed up with SST, they got their booking agency and put us in some really weird spots too. Yeah. Uh, their, their classic was they got us in, where was it? I think San Gabriel somewhere. Uh, it was a big Mexican church and there was a wedding going on upstairs and we were under the wedding. There was like a basement. We did that. So, but we did the anti-club a lot. I think we counted it up one day and I think we did the most gigs at the anti-club. Gosh, Club 88, uh, we did one show only at the Whiskey, but that was a really good gig. Uh, FM Station, when it existed, uh, a lot of these places are gone now. The um, so, so many of the names escaped me now because it's been so long. Who were who you Just playing about, with? Anybody who was on bill, they would book us with, <laughs> which again made for some really bizarre, bizarre gigs. One night, oh, uh, the uh, the Lhasa Club was a, a place we mm-hmm. played a lot under weird circumstances. This one night, they booked us uh, after an evening of singer-songwriter-poets. Mm-hmm. And these guys were on a, a series of them, and they went on for a long time. I mean, the show, the, that set started at 7. We went on after midnight. And that was really bizarre because whoever was left, we cleared the room because we had so little in common with that audience. But that happened a lot. You know, L.A., everybody wants to be, and most of most people there are searching for that big deal. So, if, you know, we were in the middle of the L.A. metal scene right. there, for example. So there was a bunch of that. If it wasn't that, people wanted to be U2 or, you know, pick the big bands from that era and at least half of what was on bill with us over the course of our existence were people trying to get that sound. Right. And we kind of threw sand in the gears and had a lot of fun doing it. (laughs) 
here's a good one for you. This was my favorite part of gigging. The, well, maybe that's an exaggeration, but this happened all the time. The sound man would come up and say, all right, all right, you guys, play your first song. To get the levels well, up. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> say, we improvise. Yeah. We, everything's improvised. Okay, but, but uh, play your first song. We improvise. So we would. We'd just play a piece and technically, well, yeah, that's our first piece. Sure, nobody else <laughs> is going to hear it, but there it is, the first piece of the night. And afterwards, usually we get asked, so that was your first piece? Yep. What do you say? <laughs> yeah, I mean, most bands would have a song they would maybe play, you know, during the sound checker to get the levels up or whatever, right? Sure. Or a first a first song that's, you know, a good one yeah. to, to do that to or whatever. Yeah, I mean, in a way, I kind of felt sorry for, for some of the people that were doing sound for us because... They had no idea what was coming next. Yeah, I mean, how would <laughs> really either? How do yeah. you even test the levels if you know people are say that the drummer's not hitting a snare during <laughs> during that particular you know jam or whatever or uh, yeah, improv improvisation? Brought, <laughs> yeah, Mark always brought a percussion table, and what's more, Kenny, in addition to. God knows what else he brought. I mean, it's a big list, but he often had percussion too. Mm -hmm. So they sort of had to either keep on their toes with us or give up. Uh, and I, the tapes often show them, you know, giving up, but <laughs> not, not that often, thankfully, right. but uh, yeah. Okay. Um, tell me about Splat Winger, the, the man and the show yeah. Brain Cookies. I think you guys probably played on that show more than any other band, I'm guessing. Yeah, we were called the house band for Brain Cookies, which is we all thought was pretty funny, but it's true. Mm -hmm. And not only was the band up there, but he would periodically do something kind of, kind of outside or weird. And he'd just call one of us up and say, come on up, you'll be playing in the hallway, or come on up, you'll be playing in the stairwell. We've mic'd it. <laughs> me playing with the acoustics but uh i i loved splat i thought he was great he just had a really cool show every week he had uh live bands on and we met a lot of people that way who uh not just sst people but you know people come from across the country mm -hmm. to come and do a radio set there and uh, it was a blast uh the the playing area was tiny it was just just this little what should have been an office for one person, like a cubicle kind of. <laughs> right. And somehow we managed to clear out the room next door. So there was a, a glass window in between. And that's where I think George and, uh, and Mark went. The drums were always in there for sure. Uh, but somebody ended up in there. I always ended up in the front room. But uh, it was tight. It was very, very tight. Great, great shows. Then you call us in and we talk on the air and stuff. And unfortunately, uh, the station didn't have a, a huge radius so that people could pick it up. Yeah. But my God, I wish they did because not just us, but the other shows, he, uh, you know, the other bands he had on and the stuff he played in between the music was always great. Yeah. So 
have very fond memories of, of all of those shows. Do you have tapes of that stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and in fact, one of them is, is up at Bandcamp now. Uh, Republican Money oh, okay. is up on Bandcamp, and that is uh, that was a show from there. We have a lot more, but uh, so yeah, there's an example. Yeah, so speaking of your Bandcamp, tell me about the airwaves, airwave rituals concept. Well, we were really unable to tour we didn't have the money we didn't have flexibility because kenny had a job with a uh, very good pay and benefits so it was really hard for him to take time off right or that is to say he wouldn't but we had been uh looking at option magazine and there were a lot of places that would say they would you know play stuff if you'd send it to them this was like the cassette underground days and people would be sending things and and they play this stuff so i looked at it one day and i said well we can't go there but what the hell you know we're playing basically a set here at the rehearsal place say their name at the beginning say we're doing it for you improvise for whatever period of time they want their tape for and say thank you good night and send it to them so that's what we did and we did the first six radio sets we did ourselves, and um, that's what Airwave Rituals is made up of. It's uh, pieces from all of those sets. Okay. And I think the entire sets will eventually come out, but for right now, that's that's what is out. How many did you do total? Oh, shit, something like 24. Wow. Because uh, SST really liked the idea, so... They arranged for us whenever we went in to do something. They arranged extra time for us to do it. In fact, it's funny because we're talking about a land without fences. The week that we did that, I mean, the album only took one night, but they set us up at Spinhead for a week so that every night we could uh, blow through a couple of radio sets. Mm. And I actually have, I think the next things I'm going to release with Paper Bag are going to be uh, six radio sets we did that week. Okay. Which range from half an hour to an hour. Okay, so when you're going into Spinhead to record, say, A Land Without Fences, yeah, like, how do you know that's going to be the SST release? <laughs> I'm just picturing you with have us in. Yeah, I guess <laughs> you you have all this material though that you're recording. I guess well, you just that's improvising. I guess right. You're gonna record for a finite yeah. amount of time, and that's the that's the piece that you're gonna submit to the label. Yeah. Well, we we knew we had a time limit with vinyl, mm-hmm. so like a land without fences, we recorded twice as much as we needed. And the idea that we always used, whether with, you know, self-release stuff or, you know, whatever it might be, we'd sort through everything we did. We'd pick the best stuff for the time allotted, you know, like the vinyl would be, you know, 35 to 40 minutes worth. You'd make up, uh, you know, you'd pick the pieces, you'd get your order, your song order, uh, and uh, that was it. So, you know, like Land Without Fences, SST said, Time for your second album. So go in, cut a bunch of stuff, pick the things you like best, and that'll be your album. Because that's the way we worked. <laughs> right. So they just went along 
with our, our way of doing things already. They knew all about us before they signed us. Right. So they, they were on board. They, they knew what they were getting, thankfully. Mm-hmm. So on the back, it says, you know, first takes only. Obviously, I get that. No overdubs, I get that. Yeah. No mix down, though. So what does that mean? Like, this is, is this just live to tape? Well, this is the only time that was true because we were experimenting with something that was kind of new at the time, which was uh, GAT, mm-hmm. which um, they're kind of, it was very a very unforgiving format because you recorded to it, and obviously there's no mix down from that because it was just too crack. Uh, but also there were, you know, you didn't dare go too loud because it's not, regular tape if it's digital if you saturated it it uh it doesn't function you get this horrible clicking sound so but yeah there was no mix down possible with this it was just straight to tape uh straight to dat yeah so when you're recording in a studio i know like visual cues are big when you're improvising and you i know you guys had signals and Obviously, by this point, you've been playing together long enough that there's a lot of just natural, I don't know, telepathy or... (laughs) Yeah. When you're in the studio, are you baffled off from each other? To an extent, but we still had to be able to see each other. Um, The hand signals and certain body signals were usually easy to read in the studio. Uh, Phil Newman knew what we did and worked with us to, to set it up. Uh, he knew we were going to be basically, we had to be able to hear each other and you know, everything was going to be live and whatnot. Um, but that's just it. We all had to be able to hear each other. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. It, he did a great job with that. Yeah. Who's Todd Jacobs? Is he just someone that worked at Spinhead <laughs> with Phil? <laughs> no, Todd Jacobs was a friend of the band who didn't didn't last real long with us because he, uh, unbeknownst to us, he had a, a pretty nasty drug habit and uh, he sort of dropped out to, to go into forced rehab. And um, at the time, he was there and kind of listening and trying to help us out and everything. But the truth is, you know, Phil basically did everything. That That's... That's how it worked. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, that's pretty much always how it worked at Spinhead, and that's that's how it should have been. Yeah. Are you uh, down with talking about the tracks on this record? Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Tehran Taxi Bomb. Now, I'm curious about your rig. Like, do, were you using pedals? Oh, was I using pedals? <laughs> I got I got some pretty good glares from people in the '80s because it was not. You know, what kind of wasn't done, but the guy that ran the rehearsal studio where we worked was, uh, he called it the nuclear reactor. (laughs) And for a a long time in that period, I had a double decker. It was probably weighed about 75 pounds and it was, I don't know, three, four feet long and probably two and a half feet deep with a row of effects on each area. Wow. Uh, it, it was really important for that kind of music. If it was something else, I'd have brought an amp and plugged the guitar in. But what we were doing really made it necessary to have a rig like that. Yeah. 
what were kind of some of your main pedals that you would have used? The ones that you can hear pretty obviously are, of course, you know, the distortion. And, and uh, I used a lot of wah, which wasn't really done too much around that time. But it, it became necessary for a couple of reasons. The main one, especially live, was to hear myself because you can dial in a frequency where you can hear what you're doing. So that, that kind of worked. But I, I like the sounds too. It, mm -hmm. it didn't, it didn't get old for me, but, uh, some of the uh, standout things was I had a, one of the 16 second, uh, digital delays, the, the loopers back then I got one in about 84 or 85, I think when they first came out and that gets used a lot. So if you hear, a part repeating or suddenly turning backwards or slowing up and you know, they're slowing down and speeding up. That's all done live because of the looper, because it could do that. I also, I did a thing where I had a, a volume pedal that was before the delay. So you could sweep it in and it would sound kind of like a Mellotron. Mm. It doesn't, you don't get the picking sound, but you, you know, you sweep it in and it, it sounds more like keyboards or something. And I also used an Ebo a lot. But, of course, there was a lot more than that. But those those are kind of the mainstays, I think. Did you guys use tapes live? Like to, to you know, to loop things and to, to manipulate? Yeah. Yeah, Kenny had uh, a special tape deck, a reel-to-reel -reel deck, that he had modified so that he could do live looping with it. Mm. And occasionally he'd make up not occasionally pretty much every time he'd make up uh, a bunch of loops before the show and stick them in a box and just pull one out at random and he wouldn't know what he grabbed until it was on um but he'd also make live loops too and he had a mixer so he could grab things off of what was going on in the room his, his setup was huge he had uh, uh a tape deck in there actually he had several tape decks he had a a, a turntable so that he could take things off of records or he could skip the records around. He didn't do the scratching or anything. He did totally different stuff with it. And we would always buy him like weird records or weird tapes or something so he could have some fun with them. Almost more um, like using it more like a sampler almost or something. Yeah, yeah it was great. It was sort of like live music concrete sometimes too. And he, God, he would do all sorts of interesting things he would loop himself while he was playing keyboards but yeah he had a, a very major he had endless cassettes which i didn't even know existed before he showed me <laughs> so yeah he was he was set up with all of that uh the next track vinyl walls who's doing the vocal on that that's mark now you said that the poetry is that or we call it does he consider yeah. it poetry is it spoken word i mean to me it's uh, a poem we, we call it both yeah, yeah, we call it poetry. So you said that's not improvised. So, but I think it kind of is. Like he's, I mean, he does he know? Okay, this next song, I'm going to pull this out, or does he hear something and grab the sheet of paper because this is the song where it's going to work? Well, he because we had that sort of roller coaster thing going. It's like, all right, we had just done a piece like this. I think. Now is, now is the way to do it. I should also explain we had, we conducted, basically. So what that meant is everybody took a turn leading a piece. So one person would kind of be in charge each piece. 
and we'd sort of flip the coin between clockwise or counterclockwise, and you know we'd go around in a circle like that, and the gig was usually two total rotations of that. And so, you know, with this, it was his rotation, and he decided, okay, this is a good time for this one. But we never knew what was coming. He had never read it out loud before, so even he didn't know kind of what his delivery was going to be like, I guess. But he he knew what it was. I mean, he kind of knew what he wanted it to be. The only one that improvised their poetry was much later on we got Dave McIntyre in the band and he did improvise his poetry okay which was which was cool yeah so when you say someone conducted does that generally mean like say it's kenny would he start yeah with a you know a keyboard pattern or something or is he just giving instruction is that how he starts it or can it be either one of those things could be either one of those things he might um and usually it involved having people come in too, like directing everybody to come in or, you know, when or everything. And there were certain physical signals to let everybody know what, what was going on. But like Kenny might have an idea of something he was going to do. And he'd uh, maybe say one word to somebody like uh, intense or, you know, uh, water or, something like that that would we would all kind of maybe cue off of and and uh, sort of apply our imaginations to and we just watch him for directions maybe he'd start a piece off and we would improvise for a little while and then he'd kind of nod to us and, and crouch meaning we should pull back and, and go quieter and um, he would read a piece of poetry okay. and do that and then afterwards he'd sort of you know, Kua said he was done. We were going to do something else. And the person who did it was in charge of ending it, too. Ah, okay. One thing I think about vinyl walls, if I remember correctly, has boat device on it. And that's a homemade instrument because I wanted a cello and couldn't afford one. <sighs> so I took an old cheap guitar and cut it down and put a, a, a rounded bridge on it. Unfortunately, I failed to consider that the... Uh, neck need to bow along needed to bow along with it uh you know to be curved so right. it was only good for open tunings but yeah, that's what right. you like the boat sound on final walls that's what it is okay uh the next track jonestown punch this one again yeah. you're kind of going off and it, it makes me wonder who like when you started playing guitar and then as you got more into it who who were your influences as a player you personally um well, most of the people who really took things into in, into weird territories, so Robert Fripp, mm -hmm. uh, Adrian Ballou, Jimi Hendrix, there were a lot of people. I mean, people you wouldn't necessarily expect, like Steve Howe and Jimmy Page or Jeff Beck and um, all kinds of oddball stuff. A lot of times they weren't uh, guitarists at all, but they were sort of more experimental musicians, but I figured, well, why not try to do that on guitar? Right. And on something like Jonestown Punch, that wasn't my rotation, but there was usually a signal for me to, uh, Mark usually had this, when he wanted me to play that kind of solo, which he often did, he'd make this signal and I'd go, okay, 
and rip. <laughs> Happy that, to that oblige. Was always, yeah, sure. It was not always my choice, but if it was asked of me by the person whose rotation it was, sure, let's do it. Uh, the next song is Windows. Yeah. Here it sounds like maybe some tape manipulation going on at the beginning of this one. I'm trying to remember. I think that's both of us because I think Kenny's got some looping going on, and I know I do. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the, the weird loop stuff going on is, I think it's both of us. Yeah, and that's Kenny reading. Okay. Definitely more of the poetry stuff I feel like on this one than Ticket to Trauma. Is that something you started doing more of as you went along? I think so, because more people got comfortable with it. Uh, Kenny and Mark were doing a bit of it, but I I think the more we played, the more, like you say, the more it came forward. And Ticket to, excuse me, Ticket to Trauma was um, originally going to be a, a, just a, a solo tape that we decided to put it. It was, it was basically from the first like two rehearsals with George. But yeah, by the time of Land Without Fences, it, it really became more of it. So yeah, I guess that's, that's accurate, sure. Uh, compulsion to fret. The drums start out with a pretty complex pattern. <laughs> this is one where I got thinking like, man, it must have been times where you're just sitting there listening to M. Siegel play a drum pattern and you're just like, what the hell am I, <laughs> am I supposed to play to that? That's funny. I think here's here's another case where you might think, for example, that was Mark's rotation, but it wasn't. That was George's rotation. Hmm. And George just said, you know, intense, you know, kind of gave him that look. So that's what Mark did. Now, that could backfire because, like you say, he would come up with something and you'd sit there for a minute going, uh-oh. But the more you played together, the more you got it. And, you know, everybody started figuring out what to do in those moments. I was already very accustomed to it, but over time, everybody got there. And it it wasn't just like telepathy, but after a while, it was almost like you could tell from what somebody was playing where they were going to go next with it. George and I developed that pretty well. Mm -hmm. I could hear something and we could sort of, if you've seen birds fly in patterns and they all sort of go somewhere at once, he and I could do that because I knew what he was going to do next and he knew what I was going to do next. So we could make these sort of right angle turns and nail it. But that's from playing together for a long time. Okay. Faith opaque. Lots going on in this song instrumentally. You've got yeah. you know, whistles and bells. And I, if you look on the back cover of this record, you can see tables of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Here's a note on that. That was at Al's Bar. That was a live show at Al's Bar. Ah. Um, but, uh, yeah, lots of percussion. Also, that piece, I don't think we might have a second one on there, but there's an SST compilation called No Age, and that piece is on there. Ah, right, yep. Yeah, lots of, of percussion. Mark was a percussionist before he was a drummer, so he actually you know, had a, a really big arsenal of stuff to bring and it changed a bit every gig and a very very creative thinker with those i think did he get called like for session work because of that he used to do sessions yeah before paper bag actually when he he went through a period of bands before us 
and uh, would occasionally do sessions. But prior to that, he had done a whole bunch of sessions, some of them uncredited, unfortunately, because that's the way things go. But, um, yeah, he used to work out of Sound City a lot. Oh, he yeah. would get called in. and mm-hmm. Yeah. I know he played with Sylvia Giancosa a little bit. Oh, yeah. He yeah. played with her. He played with... Uh, I believe he did a couple of gigs with L7. Hmm. Uh, who else? He's on an Always August record. He's on, who else? He's on a Death and Ta- couple of Death and Taxes albums. But yeah, he, he gets called. <laughs> and it's great. All right. Flip the record over, and we have a track called S.S. McGee. What, do you know what those, uh, if I'm saying it right, do you know what those initials represent? I do. This was uh, something that uh, Kenny brought in because when he first started off, he was a a band called Points of Friction who did uh, a lot of really sort of outside experimental uh, music concrete and all sorts of wild stuff. But what they, they did, they needed cassettes to work off of. And I don't know how it happened, but they found a whole bunch of uh cassettes by a guy named i can't i can't remember what the ss stands for but mcgilpin Mm. i I think maybe it was bob mcgilpin i don't remember where the ss comes from but and they just taped over those so he thought it was really funny he was out looking for records and he found you know things to to make loops off of and, and mess with live and he found a, the Bob McGilpin record that was that they had originally made the tapes off of. So um, he brought it to the sessions and said, uh, all right, we're going to have some fun. And he said to me, I want you to make the most god-awful, horrible, piercing, high noise you can. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have this loop and you guys just have fun with it. So that's what that is. Okay. And that's and he was he kind of regretted asking me to do that afterwards because it hurt his ears. But <laughs> he you... got what he asked for. Yeah. Do you know what yeah, careful what you ask for in paper bag, hey? <laughs> do you know if points of friction recorded? Oh yeah, they did. There's some there's some very good stuff out there. Uh, it was points of friction with Kenny and uh, uh, Damien Desiglia, also known as Agog. And God, there's some very important folks there who are my brain is blanking. God, Joseph Hammer. God, I know there's there's at least there's Tim Alexander and there's another person, but uh, uh, really really good stuff for that kind of that kind of music it's obviously not paper bag we're more of a rock band in in many ways than than points of friction for example they didn't have drums uh i don't i don't if they had guitar it was only to make different sounds with uh damien basically was brilliant an absolute monster when it came to making sounds out of anything so if you can get your hands on any points of friction and you like that kind of stuff, highly, highly recommend it. It's great. The next track, Action, Thrills, Adventure. 
That... Yeah, that one that one was on me. Um, <laughs> it's one of those ones I think kind of works, but I had originally wanted to do a feedback piece, and I mentioned that. And so, what did George do when I asked him to, you know, start it in? Well, <laughs> he started it in a key that isn't open, and if it's not an open key for any of the strings you're going to be screwed as far as getting feedback because that's how it works. And uh, it was, a, I had a locking tremolo thing, so you can't very well retune it in, in midstream. So I just did what I could with it. And um, it turned out to be, you know, pretty decent. So, and we were at a, a lack for, for various reasons. We were at a, we didn't have two, a double batch of stuff to choose from. We had a lot less to choose from, for this album than we expected. Mm -hmm. So I grudgingly said, yeah, it's cool. It's good. Go for it. And this is not to say it's a bad tune. It's, it, it's more or less not what I had wanted, not necessarily make it bad. It's just not what I was after. Okay. So. I feel like that song is a bit more straightforward like a, a bit closer yeah. to the majority of say ticket to trauma. The rest of this record is, seems more abstract to me. It is. It is. And I think in a lot of ways that's because of what we had to choose from. And, you know, I, I generally brought the more of the, the rock stuff in, uh, although everybody kind of liked it. We all had places where our tastes overlapped. If there was going to be something more mainstream rock sounding, it was probably going to come from me. So that that's how that happened. And I know you liked Garberville too off Ticket to Trauma, and that's also how that one happened too. Yeah. So the next song, Their Fault. Oh yeah. <laughs> that was a quickie, but it was fun. That was just sort of a, a paranoid paranoid rant. Mark's very good <laughs> with those. And it it sounds intense, but it, it's like sick humor it's supposed to be funny i i find it funny so yeah that that's that one the whole thing's supposed to be crazed like the poetry is mm -hmm. mr moto takes a ride now how how are you naming these songs are you picking the songs that you want on the album and then you're all sitting down and spitballing ideas that's exactly right yeah okay that's exactly what we did and are, who, who's coming up with most of the names? Who's the, who's the namer in the band? There really wasn't one because it was the person whose rotation it was, just like they're in charge of the piece, they have to be the one to, to give it the thumbs up or the yeah. thumbs down. And uh, sometimes we would just sort of, you know, one or the other of us would draw a blank and we'd come up with, you know, whatever everybody could agree on, because Paper Bag was a, a democracy and everybody had to like it. But, no, there really wasn't a particular namer or anything like that. Okay. But this this one was funny because that's that's Kenny doing all the loops. This was his rotation. And because it had that sort of Japanese feel to it, that started us off. Okay, question of the year. It sounds like yeah. someone flipping through TV channels. It is. That's uh, Nubs Guttmacher, who, uh, I, I don't know if that's a name you know. He mm -hmm. did sound for a lot of shows and still does. 
um, when we did the actual session for this, because of course that one was all done in one night, uh, that day I had had a couple of wisdom teeth pulled and I was bleeding and bleeding and bleeding. And I don't, I didn't ask for help usually because, uh, you know, I just didn't. But on that occasion, I said, you know, nubs, can you give me a hand? And he did. And I said, all right, I'm going to sneak you on the album. We're do this. <laughs> so I grabbed, I had one of those little, um, cassette recorders like you would take to a lecture, you know, sound quality is shit, but, but they function. Yeah. So I had him go over to the TV and I turned the tape on and I said, just switch the channels at will just do whatever you want to. And he did. And, uh, in the session, I just, I rewound it. I handed it to Kenny and I said, go for it. So that's how that ended up on there. And we took the title from, you know, some of the, one of the things that right. ended up on the tape. Yeah. Yeah. Dachau. Who's the vocalist on that one? That's Kenny. And that was, that was fun. Although, you know, as fun as Dachau can be, but right. uh, I think he, he had seen the twilight zone episode with uh, the, the commandant who goes back and, you know, wants to celebrate the old times and he's met by people he killed and it doesn't go so well for him. But, the thing I think was fun about, I got to do processed screams, which was basically a really shitty box mic that I plugged into my uh, pedal board mm-hmm. and just did that and screaming. And then Kenny's performance is, is really, really intense, mm-hmm. which very often Kenny was. He was, he was the Buddhist and the mellowest person in the band, but, during his performances, he was the one everybody worried about. Not us, but the audience. <laughs> I always thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> and then the last track is Ground Zero. Almost a free jazz thing going on with that one. It's sort of... It is kind of, but it, it's sort of like... Ticket to Trauma starts off as loud as you can go and drops down. That was the idea behind this one. This one was like that without dropping. The whole idea was just blast. And I don't know where that came from. I honestly cannot remember. But of all of the pieces that should have distorted over the course of the evening, that's the one that should have, and it didn't. I don't know why. But that's basically what happened. It was just a free-for-all and everybody just slammed it as hard as they could. Now you mentioned on your Bandcamp there's eight eight bonus tracks, so that including the ones here, that's the entirety yeah. of the session. Yeah, it is. And one thing to say about that was that uh, the sound quality isn't the same as the other ones for for a couple of reasons. Uh, you know, as as it was on the released album, because these were the ones that technically speaking, according to what we had back then, we couldn't use. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know I had these until I was sorting through the archives and found our um, our test cassettes. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, bur- burned off them and just take them back and listen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are a number of things among these that might not have made the cut, but there are a number of them that I was really hoping would have made the cut. And when I found out they didn't, I was pissed. I was really, it's one of the, it took me a long time to sort of come to grips with this particular album because I I wasn't happy about 
how that went. So I was really, it was really nice to be able to sort of turn that around and make sure everything got released. But I don't think of the stuff of the bonus tracks. I don't think there are really any turkeys in there. I think, I feel like there's one that goes on a little too long, but uh, otherwise it's pretty good. The, uh, there were points at which the sound quality, there was very little I could do to make it the quality of the other stuff. But I had a lot of digital stuff, you know, a whole digital studio at my disposal to make it work. I tried noise reduction and it sounded like garbage. So I went with the hiss because at least it didn't kill the instruments. The What would have been the title track, A Land Without Fences, was our attempt, to, my my attempt really to, to get, I always liked the longer pieces and I thought, let's try something. Let's try doing an entire band rotation as one piece and everybody takes a segment and then the person who starts it gets to end it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's how A Land Without Fences got to be 14 minutes long, which is <laughs> way longer than anything we ever released. But it is a band rotation, and everybody takes a turn leading the piece in a different direction. I kind of thought it was important because, number one, there was nothing else out there like that, and, and number two, it was technically the, the album title. The liner notes on the back of this record are really good. Yeah. Who's Bob Morris? Bob Morris wrote for um, Option. Mm. Uh, he might have written for a couple of other people, but he did a review of us that we really liked, and we wrote him and said, well, you know, thank you for this review. And when this album came up, his, his review kind of showed that he knew what we were trying to do, and of course we liked that. So we said, do you want to do liner notes for the back of it? He said, yes, and there they are. Uh, the cover is by MS Art Services. I think I know who that probably is. Uh, yeah, Mark had an art <laughs> business at the time. He did commercial art, and uh, he always did our posters and all the album covers. Mm-hmm. He had a great graphic designer at our disposal there. So For sure. You've got the photo by Naomi. Did she yeah. photograph the band a lot? Yes, not as much as I would have liked because she was awesome, but uh, yeah. It's funny because I was in a record store looking at, what was it? I think the cover of Worm Mm -hmm. uh, with this sort of almost like an infrared color cover. It was really good. Thinking, damn, I sure would like that woman to take our picture someday. And a couple of weeks later, she was. (laughs) And she shot a whole bunch of original promo pictures with us. I actually have, I think, all of them, you know, like a, a whole roll worth. Right. Uh, and then, you know, she came to Al's bar and shot, shot those pictures. So that is a wild paint job on the wall. Of this club. <laughs> Al's bar always, and they, and they switched it up a lot. So the next time I played there, uh, was a totally different paint job, uh-huh. but yeah, they were great. I, I'm sad dear. They eventually they closed down. They were in downtown LA. Good place. Now, when you guys played live, I'm just looking at the picture. Did you set up like a normal band, or did you set up differently because of the the improvising, like more circular? 
we were really almost never able to do that. I think we would have liked it, but it, we had to work with what we had, and almost no place that we ever played allowed us to do that. Uh, there were gigs when somebody or a couple of us had to play on the floor because the stage wasn't big enough. So, yeah, we we went with what we had. All right. What kind of guitar are you playing in that picture? Probably my SG. Yeah, is that what you played? Mostly SGs? Yeah, that particular one, that that red one in the picture, I got that right around the time we uh, were finishing up Ticket to Trauma, and I think that's on just about everything that followed. That was my main guitar for a long time. Okay. Matter of fact, I'm still using it. It's sitting downstairs on a guitar stand, so... Oh, well, let's talk about that for a minute. So we've mentioned your band camp a few, a few times. There's just a ton of stuff on there. Kenny has an album up on your oh, band yeah. camp, I believe came out yeah. after he passed. Yeah, I, I was something I really, really wanted to do because, you know, I love Kenny. He was a great guy. And when I heard that he was doing a solo album, I get excited about it. Cause that's great. Kenny. That's wonderful. But then he died without putting it out and that always seemed kind of screwed up to me so i didn't know if i'd ever get my hands on the tapes or on the the files but i always thought if that were ever possible i'd do this and when i got the archive it was all there and i did it was easy because he had finished masters of everything the hardest stuff was finding his song order so I didn't have to do anything except design a cover and figure out what the order was going to be. So it was it was very, very easy to do, and I'm so glad I, I could have done it. There's a bunch more of his stuff I'd like to release. We did a lot of duet stuff together that hasn't been released, and I'm hoping to do that too. Yeah, that'd be cool. It looks like you were pretty busy during lockdown. You've got Victimless Crime up there and also a, two yeah. solo albums, I think, you did last year. Yeah, and that was a really slow year for me. This year's been worse. It, it sort of depends on, on what time is available, but uh, the solo stuff has gotten more and more, I don't know if complex is necessarily true, but I've certainly been more of a stickler about trying to learn how to get the sounds I want, uh, you know, because I'm not really an engineer or a producer or anything like that, but I've, I've had to become one out of necessity. Right. So I've been trying to learn the craft of that as I've been putting these albums out. Whereas the things I started when I got back to work in uh, 2014, late 2014, I gave it my best shot as far as making them sound good, but I wasn't specifically trying to learn something about, engineering and production every time I, I went. So these last couple of ones, I, I did that. But my records so far, I did uh, eight solo albums in a year. Wow. What would you point people to on your band camp? What do you want people to check out on there? Wow. Um, it's, it's difficult because I cover a lot of different kinds of things. I mean, I, I would say if you have time, just listen to a, a a pretty wide selection, you know, a track here or a track there. The only problem with that recommendation is that something, especially the newer stuff, it starts off 
sounding like one thing and then goes through nine different transformations <laughs> in the middle of it and ends being somewhere totally different. But right. um, all the stuff with vocals and lyrics is mostly in the early, I guess, six albums. And then I did one with vocals when I came back, a uh, handful of ashes. Everything after that's been instrumental. Mm-hmm. So if you if they really want vocals and, and lyrics and stuff, that's where they start. What's in store for this year? Are you going to be doing more of your own stuff? And are you going to keep digging in boxes under your stairs? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's actually... No room under the stairs. That's all family <laughs> stuff. But the, the archive is all around me in the studio. And the next thing I'm going to do are those radio sets from the previous, uh, you know, three or four days in the Land, full, uh, land Without Fences sessions. Because oh, cool. they were two-track as well, but they were two-track ter- two tape. And there was nothing particularly odd about that setup and still, you know, watch the meters the whole time. And so I'm expecting those to be really good and they're on high quality cassettes and everything. And these were the masters that we dubbed off of to send to the radio right. uh, stations. So this is actually a grade up from, from what they got to play on the air. Mm. But th- those are my first ones. So that'll be, if I get through that, that'll be six paper bag releases this year. Well, we'll watch for that. And, yeah, I'm in the middle of, in the middle of. I'm hopefully at the end of one I've been working on since last year, and uh, I'd really like to get that one out soon. It's split off into two two pieces, and uh, the 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 album to come after that is going to feature uh, Paul Green, who's a poet. I did an album with him, I guess, two years ago. He's uh, he's been a poet in Britain since the '60s. Mm-hmm. And I really like him. His stuff is like uh, a cross between um, uh, William Burroughs and science fiction. You know, it's it's pretty out, but it's really good stuff. Wow! And there's an uh, album and, with him up on the Bandcamp already. Yeah, there is. I I have two poetry albums out there. One with him, and one with uh, Dave McIntyre. And I'm very fond of, of both of them. And Paul plays. Um, sax too and that's what he's going to be doing on this uh this upcoming one. Oh wow that sounds uh, cool yeah yeah and, and he's, a, he's a great guy he, he's got books out so i would suggest looking those up i usually try and leave links for his his stuff so okay and the lyrics are all up too so and the band camp is under your name not not paper bag for people it, that want to track it down yeah and this is sort of the way it's happened. The paper bag's first presence online was when I put up my own web page back in 99. And I thought, there's nothing out there. Let's do something about this. So there was a whole section devoted to paper bag and nobody was doing anything about it. I didn't even have the archive. Uh, once I had started my Bandcamp uh, page and I thought, this is ridiculous. Let's make this stuff available. Mm-hmm. So I started off uh, transferring from vinyl because uh, you know I didn't have a lot of the uh, master stuff, and uh, you know I just cleaned it up as best I could, which is what I did with Ticket to Trauma, and uh, also 
the uh, you know land without fences. The bonus tracks I got off tapes, but uh, I went with the actual release sound and without fences. And then we were running out of room. George was leaving where he was living. The, the archive had been bounced around from every member of the band except me because <laughs> uh, I had moved to Portland and everybody else at one point or another had it down in L.A. Because George was moving and the storage space it was in was, you know, we had to get it out of there or it was going to go into the trash, basically. So we figured something out and we split the cost of a van and George drove up with this massive amount of tapes and tape machines. <laughs> I have Kenny's loop machine. Oh, wow. And and eventually I'm going to have to try out all the various tape machines that these things were made on and hope they work. Right. And I'll be able to, you know, any of the multi-tracks I'll be able to, to mix. So that'll be great. Wow. It must be fun going back in time and, and listening to some of this stuff so many years later. Yeah. yeah. It's weird to think that it has been longer ago that I made this stuff or that we all made this stuff, I should say, than I was old at that time. I was like in my early twenties yeah. and, and mid twenties when we were doing this stuff, you know, and I'm 57 now. So wow. <laughs> it's pretty bizarre. <laughs> yeah. Greg, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. And, uh, you know, there's there's two more to go. So if you want to do that, you want to, uh, you want to do this again, I'm totally up for it. We will so. definitely take you up on that offer. All right. Thank you very much, Brent. Thank you. All right, Brent. Wow. To quote you, wow. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Yeah. I think I know what your favorite part of the interview probably was. What's that? The Dickies mention. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. That was cool. Yeah. And the musicianship of the Dickies, of course, they can totally play. Yeah. You know what else, though, that really stuck out for me was, you know, again, part of the story of this label SST, where they told Paper Bag, okay, guys, it's time for your second album. Yeah. And they just, and then they just came back with it and said, here it is, and they put it out. I, I got to think that there was like, maybe not no questions asked, but probably not many questions asked that would filter this right from paper bag right to the listener. Like, I don't, yeah. I think SST was just supporting the art here, and I love that. Yeah, well, I, Greg said it in the interview, you know, he said they knew what they were getting. Yeah. And I was thinking about that, like, you know, he said they recorded, I think, six other sessions this week that SST paid for, <laughs> you know, for the radio stations, which is such a cool concept. Yeah. Uh, no surprise that they have, I think he says something like 400 hours worth of yeah of material. It says that on their website. Yeah. But, you know, I was kind of surprised that there's only four records by paper bag on SST. Yeah. Well, especially since they had so much material. And, that's what I mean. Like, yeah, but but I mean, think about it. Like, when you think of the bands that people usually malign on SST, like Zoog's Rift, for example. Like, mm -hmm. and, and I guess what I'm, I mean, I di obviously disagree with that characterization. But if you think about the really weird bands 
musicians that don't sound like Black Flag, Husker Du, blah, blah, Miniman, blah, 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 right? That a lot of people really take issue with on SST. Paper Bag had so much material for SST to put out, only four releases. Don't they, didn't they put out something like 10 Zoog's Rift out <laughs> releases? That's what the, I mean. Yeah, like, they didn't crazy. give a shit. Yeah. SST did not give a shit about yeah. what people said about the label, about any of that. In fact, they probably, you know, embraced it. It's probably part of the reason they put out so many Zoog's Rift records. Oh, you know, oh, you don't think this is what we should be doing as a label? Well, here you go. Here's more of it. That's what I mean about Paper Bag. Like, with just given the the output of the label, I'm surprised they didn't mm-hmm. have double the amount of Paper Bag releases considering, you know, how much material there was available. Yeah, maybe it was a situation of being too prolific and hard to pick and therefore hard to, you know, kind of go through all the tapes. It's like... In the time it would take to go through, you know, six sessions worth of material and narrow it down to an album, you know, you've already played a couple dozen more shows. Yeah. <laughs> and, and those ones are way back in the dust. And that's yeah. why, you know, you just got to pick that one and go, here you go. And that's your representation in the moment. Like you said, it might be a better gig tomorrow or next week or next month, but it doesn't matter. That's not the purpose. You're you're capturing something that seemed good at the time and you just put it out there and see what happens i love that yeah let's go through the tracks ryan history lesson part two so this record was released in december of 87 on lp and cassette and it's up on their Bandcamp too ryan with a bunch of bonus tracks funny though that they had all these extra tracks and there's you know no extra tracks on the cassette yeah track one side one Taran Taxi Bomb. The thing I like about this one is George starts out playing this kind of pulse on the bass, but when M. Siegel kicks in with the rhythm, it kind of goes in a different direction than you think it will. Yeah, a few of the tracks on this record do that, where someone will someone will start out a pattern, but then when the second person locks in, it'll the the rhythm will alter slightly or it'll speed up it'll slow down once they once they kind of lock in and like aha okay now i get it and then the rest of the band piles on yeah no surprise that my favorite part of this song is greg's solo the shredding yeah you can hear that looping kind of delay pedal or whatever it is which is why i asked him about his pedal board and he sent me in some pics of that session too oh really (laughs) yeah you can see like i think he calls his pedal board a double decker or yeah. whatever yeah. <laughs> i love that yeah, yeah and, then see... it, and then it just kind of turns into chaos at the end of the song yeah track two vinyl walls some atmospheric synth mark doing some poetry that really suits the backing track or vice versa i suppose asshole caught stared with two black eyes he stussed stuttered some obligatory wisdom yeah, this is like a precursor to paranoid slam poetry almost. Yeah. Track three, Jonestown Punch, menacing bass line from George. Maybe Fuzzed. Yeah, maybe like a rototom or something. That's what I hear, yeah. Roto yeah. rototoms and some fuzzed out bass and then some more shredding is what I wrote down. Yeah. Nice counter melody from Kenny on this one. This one has a cool vibe. Gets rhythmic. Yep. Yeah. Track four, Windows, some more atmospheric kind of synth with a pretty far out poem from Mark. I was thinking, Ryan, it would have been wicked if M. Siegel would have 
done a poetry album on New Alliance Records. Oh yeah, right, he could have, for sure. There is a void, I've sensed it. (laughs) Track 5, Compulsion to Fret. 4 minutes 52 seconds, the longest for sure on the album. I think Mark says George initiated this rotation with the word intense. It starts with a super jazzy drum beat from Mark and some cool jazzy bass from George. Cool with Greg and Kenny kind of hard right and hard left, both going off with George and Mark up the middle. Yeah, this one's a highlight for me as a bass player for sure, especially after watching the Jacko documentary a few weeks back. He's definitely got some, you know, if not technique, some Jacko tone going on here on the playing, and I loved it. Yeah. It really shows George's bass chops too, because like it's obviously they can all play, but it doesn't really show off George's bass chops that often amongst all of this type of playing this is a real showcase for him though yeah and then we end side one with the track that as greg reminded me uh, that we've heard before on the no age comp it's faith opaque it's mark i assume playing many of the bells whistles and i think on the back it says toys and industrial junk yeah it has like uh symbols and bells almost sounds like you know the types of bells that you would hear like at a monastery or like almost wind chimes too. Very different. Yep. yep. And then we flip it over for S.S. McG. Greg tells the story of this one in the interview. I believe it relates to some recordings used or gathered for, for use by Kenny's previous group, Points of Friction, which I absolutely have to check out. Joseph Hammer was in the group. He was also in a group called Solid Eye, who I believe I've talked about on the podcast before they have an insane record called fruits of automation on devin sarno's and tom grimley's win label ah that really has to be heard to be believed but i got to track down some points of friction track two action thrills adventure this was greg's rotation and he gets it going with a solid riff i think greg says this one didn't come off as he intended but it's a pretty rock and jam to my ear yeah it's it's like a swing rhythm thrasher this is one where the guitar starts out a certain way. Once the drums come in, it locks in a bit different than it started out as. So maybe that's what he means. I don't know. Yeah. Track three, Their Fault. Mark's paranoid rant, as I believe Greg puts it in the interview, yeah. with the accompanying paranoid music. Track four, Mr. Moto Takes a Ride. This was Kenny's rotation. Sounds like a a kodo, those large string instruments, kind of prominent in Jack- Japanese music. Mm. Too bad they didn't have a sakahuchi on hand, Ryan. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. yeah, definitely. It's it's that bending of the string sound that's so distinct in terms of what you're mentioning, I think. Yeah. Track five, question of the year. Some TV flip flipping captured by Soundtech Nubs Gutmacher with some bongos over top and what sounds like a loop of an opera singer. I like this one. I always have a super soft spot for avant-garde stuff like this, so I'm happy it's on here. Yeah, did you catch the the phrase question of the year as like one oh, yeah. of the, one of the last channels flicks? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. When you like it's one of those things where you could you could totally miss it, but if you're really listening to this record and trying to study it and you catch it, you're just like, aha, you've got that little secret with the band. I love that. Yeah. And the next track, Oh, Dachau. <laughs> Pretty intense poem with 
you know, super wild delivery by Kenny. This is a, this one's great. And the sound effects are really good too. Possibly the Bode device on this mm, one, maybe. Definitely a political poem too, hey, about yeah. colonialization and dispossession. Very intense, man. Yep. And then we end it with a great noisy jam, Ground Zero. This to me is like a, I wrote down, it's like a feedback fest over a, a drum pattern. Yeah. That's it, Ryan. There's eight bonus tracks on Greg's Bandcamp that are worth checking out, including the 14-minute title track. Land Without Fences, yeah. Yeah. Like I said, man, I'm sure they had better sessions than this. And maybe even that week. There was like six other sessions they recorded that week. But I don't know. <laughs> They've, I guess, just committed to releasing whatever comes out that night, for better or for worse, and... That's hard for me to fathom, but I, I think it's cool. Uh, a few reviews, Ryan, that Greg sent in. Here's one from Billboard. Live in the studio, all improvised program by Eclectic Quartet incorporates jazzy stylings, noise outbursts, and a few narrative passages. The jams are representative of the SST style at its most extreme and taxing. Only fearless alternative outlets need investigate. And here's one from David Stubbs in Melody Maker, which is pretty cool. They got reviewed there. Paper Bag are at the open end of SST, an improvisational music cooperative who share their t-shirts with Dinosaur, but are more disposed to long, early morning rambles through the dales of eclecticism, tape loops, and effects, waving their bowed devices proudly like knobbly sticks as Dinosaur snore on in their festering basements. Nothing wrong with the latter, of course, but very little wrong either with Paperbag's pure rock improvisation, an approach that I've never known to be undertaken by any other group so unstintingly. Paperbag aren't as sprawling or devastating as either Faust or Can, the only groups that spring immediately to mind. Mm. Here's a group that can go anywhere and reinvent themselves on the spot. More hit than miss, and more and more, please. For the packaging, Ryan, we've got uh, Naomi's great photo at Al's bar on the back. Oh yeah. yeah. They, they're just rocking the sweatbands and suspenders. Yeah. Greg also sent me some great Naomi pro promo photos, like outtakes. And they look super badass in these photos. Oh yeah. Like in their red and black band colors. Greg looks to be playing, um, it's his SG, right? But he's got like a, like a studded, guitar strap like metals metal studs whoa in some of the pictures he sent me he's playing a double neck sg <laughs> awesome. like, like, like jimmy page hey yeah wow yeah the front cover is not terribly exciting i mean it looks like kind of a pixelated piece of artwork um with some patterns maybe like bacteria in a petri dish or something I don't know. I think it's just super blown up pixels. Pixels, yeah. Yeah, like magnified on a photocopier or something. Yeah, wouldn't surprise me. Um, and then it mentions, of course, on the back, recorded July twenty third, nineteen eighty seven, at Spinhead Studios, produced by Paperbag, Phil Newman, and Todd Jacobs. And then it says, first takes only, no overdubs, no mix down, no shit. Yep. You want some dead wax? Yeah, I, I spoke too soon the other week when I said we were maybe done with dead wax. No, man. 
keep the faith. Here we go with side A. It says, the philosophy of one century is dot, dot, dot. And then side B says, the common sense of the next. Hmm. Heavy. Yeah, man. Ballot result. Ballot result. I feel like you're probably going to pick some slam poetry, but I would go with Compulsion to Fret as my pick for sure. Yeah, I like Jonestown Punch, Compulsion to Fret, Question of the Year, Dachau, Ground Zero. We can do Compulsion to Fret. That's a good one. Yeah, right on. I'm down. Right on. Thanks to Greg for sending in all the stuff and for being on the show too. It was great, great having him on. Yeah, no kidding, man. Like, wow. And I love that. I mean, he's still doing it. He's still yeah. doing it. They're still still putting out stuff. Still, you know, probably over 350 hours of music to be shared. Love it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I hope when they release some of the Brain Cookie stuff, you can hear the, you know, the interviews and stuff, like them talking on the air. Mm-hmm. That's what's my favorite thing about that Zoog's Rift live recording I have from Splat Winger's show that I mentioned a few weeks ago. He's, he takes phone calls on it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Back when you could, you can't anymore. Yeah. Not live anyways. Yeah. Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brent, we're going back to human rights. It's the HR album, the HR tapes. Right on. Looking forward to it. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.